research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hello and welcome to The Drill Down. Uh, I am Eric Eggers, not Peter Schweitzer, but uh, we are still going to relentlessly expose cronyism and corruption in the federal government. And this time I'm joined by Peter Schweitzer, who I think uh, it must be said is not here, but he's uh, huddled up in a hotel room somewhere in New Orleans where no, he's not celebrating in New Orleans the fact that his book was number one on the New York Times bestseller list two weeks in a row. He's been out spreading the word of his runaway blockbuster hit, Red Handed. Peter Schweitzer, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you, Eric. I'm in New Orleans. I'm going to be addressing uh, the State Financial Officers Foundation tonight, which is kind of an obscure sounding group. Yes, it is. It's actually made up of the of the financial officers of most of the states of the United States. And we're going to be talking about China and the role they might be playing in dealing with some of the challenges we're discussing. And I'm excited that we are joined by another Eric today, uh, Eric Schwartzel, who's written a terrific book uh, called Red Carpet. Uh, and this is a book about Hollywood, China, and the battle for g- global supremacy. It's a terrific book. He's a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, and he's looking at the cultural side of what we've been discussing uh, with a lot of China. Before we get to Eric, uh, our guest, Eric uh, Eggers, what was the last movie that you saw? Yeah, I, um, yeah, I wish it was something cool, right? Like Spider-Man or something sort of masculine. Uh, instead, it was Sing 2. Which I have to say was excellent uh, because I took because it kept the attention of not only all of my children but uh, but my attention and even the grandparents and I think even even when the the lion character played by Bono kind of walks out on the stage and he sees his deceased wife's memory like my my stepfather teared up a little bit so I saw it yep. big red don't worry about it yeah I'm gonna th- call you out so yeah Sing Two great movie that's the last one I saw in uh, in the theater what about you. Uh, you know, in the, in a theater, it's been a while. I went and saw Stephen King's It with my daughter a few years ago. That is on um, brand, and that was that was quite enjoyable. Uh, you know, it's it's basically this clown is going around, or this creature is going around killing all these kids in a town, and halfway through the movie. Uh, my daughter turns over to me and said, "Why don't they just move?" Which <laughs> was, yeah, which I think is a pretty rational response. Um, our guest again is Eric Schwartzel. Eric, what was the last movie you saw in the theater? Um, first of all, thanks for having me. I, it's it's not often that I get to join another Eric and another author who had the idea to put red in his book title <laughs> about China. Um, I think that let me think here. The last movie I saw in a theater. Was I, I saw the new Scream, um, okay. which was which is another example of of um, I mean really an example of of a community that should just move and, <laughs> and home prices should plummet because I think this is the fourth or fifth time that a, a masked killer has come to that specific town. Like how is it targeting not a hub those of, specific people? Yeah, should be should be a hub of Section Eight housing at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's terrific. Uh, well, Eric, let's get started on your book. Um, I know Eric has a lot of questions. I do as well. 
Can we just take a big picture look for a second? I want to know, you know, oftentimes uh, commerce with China is sort of wrapped around the notion that, you know, this is sort of a cultural export. It's going to have a positive influence on U.S.-Chinese relations. It's maybe going to help China liberalize a little bit more. That's really been the argument for 30 years. Where we are today, is that still a prominent view among Hollywood executives, or is there sort of involvement with China, they're willing to self-censorship, really now just more about the money? I, yeah, I think that optimism is waning. Um, you're right that whenever Hollywood movies started flowing into China, they were seen as part of this wave of potential democratic reform, right? This idea that if that if only the Chinese citizens could see Captain America a few times, they might they might, you know, push for push for reform. And that hasn't really been the case. And I think right now, especially in the past six to 12 months, Hollywood has seen access to the market really shut off. And, and I think really reminded them that there this was going to be this was not going to be business as usual and that protectionist measures could be enforced at any moment and that the box office that the studios have been chasing for the past decade and a half is not a guarantee anymore. Um, but, you're, but you're absolutely right that back in the 90s when Hollywood movies started flowing in, they were part of that pre and then post WTO moment where people thought that if we would only modernize China's economy, that some kind of democratic reform would follow. Yeah, and Eric, one of the things that I think is interesting about your reporting and seeing some of the other interviews you've done is you talk about sort of the evolution of, I mean, you just referenced the 90s, but even a couple of years ago, the view concerning China and Hollywood and American culture might be different than it is today. So I'd like to sort of have you walk through that time frame a little bit, but also just to Peter's point in the big picture frame, because one of the questions we get, we've done the last few podcasts on Peter Schweitzer's book, Red Handed, and how American elites have helped China win. And people have said, okay, well, that's fine. But like, why is that a problem? Right? So why is it a big deal? And why is it not okay, that China might be growing at the expense of American interests? And so there's a couple different things we've tried to talk about. We talk about uh, Christopher Ray, head of the FBI's speech, just a couple of weeks ago, where he says that the greatest long-term threat to the nation's information intellectual property is uh, espionage threat from China. But then we also had a report, the annual threat assessment from the director of national intelligence. And one of the things they identified is China's effort to expand its glowing, in, growing influence in, as part of a global drive for influence. So I guess I, it's a long way of asking, uh, do you see your reporting as part of what our intelligence services have identified as China's thirst for and quest for global influence? And, uh, and then how has that evolved over the last decade? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is, it is a complement to a lot of the more obvious examples of Chinese influence, whether it's in the form of loans or infrastructure or hard investments. I think there are definitely these soft power ambitions that are trying to function much like Hollywood did for America in the 20th century. Um, I think Chinese leaders have observed how Hollywood helped sell America to the world and really serve a role that I think has put Hollywood in a tough spot right now because fairly or not, I think a lot of Americans and a lot of American leaders expect Hollywood to still fill that role and, and sell America to the world. And a lot of the people running the studios today don't see that as part of their job. They see their job as 
putting out these global products that sell tickets everywhere. So the idea that they would have some kind of American first mentality just doesn't make any economic sense in today's reality. Um, so, but I, th- but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I looked in when I was reporting the book beyond the U.S. and beyond China because I thought, you know, the idea that China's soft power ambitions wouldn't work because Americans might not take to it was really short-sighted. And if you go to other parts of the world, especially where I spent some time in Africa, you see already a kind of cultural coexistence happening where I, I met a young boy whose hero was the Monkey King and whose other hero was The Rock. And there's already not necessarily a wholesale replacement, but definitely a coexistence and and, a, and it's functioning as a way for a lot of these African civilians to get to know the country that has appeared in their country, get to know the superpower that's appeared in their countries almost overnight. I mean, uh, uh, some of these villages just woke woke up one day and there were dozens of Chinese workers building a Chinese train station, right. you know, in their, in their backyard. Um, so they need to have some kind of introduction to the country that is doing that for them. And it just so happens that the movies and TV shows that China is shipping them is sending them a very specific image of well, that and, country. And to that point, can you just briefly explain what you mean by the Monkey King? Yeah, sure. So the Monkey King is this uh, he's a famous ancient mythological figure that has sort of functioned as a, a children's hero throughout generations. And it's kind of, kind of just like every time, if you turn on TV in China, at some point you'll find some iteration of the Monkey King um, happening. So it's like a more mythological Mickey Mouse, I guess you could say, um, that, that every Chinese child knows. And I was really shocked to see even some non-Chinese kids. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about some of the um, icons that this child was latching onto. Um, I'm a child of the 80s, and I remember an actor named Richard Gere, Uh, And I know one of the things you reported is that there are actually actors or people in Hollywood that are actually having a hard time uh, basically getting major roles or getting involved in film projects because I don't know if you'd call it a blacklist. Maybe you would call it a blacklist. Maybe it's a soft blacklist. But could you explain what happened to Richard Gere, um, why he hasn't been in a major film in Hollywood in, in what, more than a decade, and who else uh, might be subject to this kind of soft blacklist in Hollywood because of some of the views they've expressed involving China? Yeah, this was one of the big questions I had when I started out reporting this book because Richard Gere himself has said that his support for Tibet and the Dalai Lama and his criticism of China going back to the early 90s has led to him not getting work. And there's been some, you know, scrutinizing of those comments. Some people say, you know, don't flatter yourself. You're the reason you're not getting work. China, don't don't blame this on China, and because you know everyone out here in Hollywood's such so nice and and generous to their to their colleagues. Um, but I think that what I found was that as China's economic leverage grew, Gears' public support and public criticism of China really became radioactive. And even though in the early 2000s, he still was booking these major parts, around 2008 
when China's box office really started to take off, no major studio would touch him. And I talked to a casting uh, executive at Warner Brothers about this, and they told me, you know, think of it this way. Like, if you really need to book Richard Gere, you can have a conversation. But if you can call someone else, just why take the risk? Because he has been so publicly supportive of the Dalai Lama. I mean, he interrupted an Oscar speech before it was cool to criticize China back in the early 90s. He's made movies um, that are very critical of China. And he's even testified before Congress um, in, in ways critical to China. So for a studio that's trying to get a movie past Chinese censors, it's a bit of an economic no-brainer. Why, and, and like I said, unless you really need him for the role, why not just cast someone who's not going to create that problem? And since then, there have been other actors and musicians who have fallen into similar traps. Lady Gaga is one for a very similar reason because of her very public support of the Dalai Lama. And this also explains why when an actor steps out of bounds in Beijing's eyes, they have to rush to apologize. So last year, the actor John Cena hastily recorded this uh, apology in Mandarin because he had given an interview where he implied Taiwan was its own country. Obviously, Beijing does not think that. Beijing thinks that Taiwan is part of one China. And John Cena, because of what has happened to actors like Richard Gere, knew what he had to do, which was rush to apologize in this, you know, frankly, what appeared to be a hostage video, apologize to the Chinese people, or else risk his movies not playing there for the next several years. And that's a big deal, because as you pointed out in, I think, your book and elsewhere, as the pandemic impacted United States domestic audiences, China became the number one box office in the world, correct? That's right. And and it was an inevitability, right? We knew that because ticket sales in the U.S. had been relatively flat, but they were still growing in China, that China would become the number one box office in the world eventually. However, it happened much faster because of COVID, because Chinese movie theaters reopened much faster than they did in the U.S. And I actually think, you know, Peter, to your to your book, China's economic recovery out of COVID gave it leverage over all kinds of industries because there was this moment in late 2020, early 21, where one earnings call after another, whether it was Nike or Daimler Chrysler, the, the narrative was the same, which was essentially thank God for China because the, the economy had recovered there so much faster than in the US or in Europe. And so it was allowing these companies to report much healthier earnings than they otherwise would have after the pandemic. Um, and it was the same. It was the same for, for the theatrical market. You know, China's box office took off. It's still number one. Um, the movies that it's releasing now are making hundreds of millions of dollars routinely, even as American theaters are still struggling. We're talking with Eric Schwarzel, who's written a terrific new book uh, called uh, Red Carpet uh, about Hollywood and China. I would highly recommend it to everyone. He's also, Eric, just, just to interrupt quickly, he also answered the question of why there won't be a pretty woman, too, which I think is a big deal. <laughs> right. Well, that one's, that that's a tough one for China for a number of reasons, <laughs> even without Richard Gere. I mean, I don't know the... There's some there's some thematic issues that I think the, the censors might take issue with, I think. <laughs> well, and that's, a, that's interesting um, to follow up on that, Eric, because one of the points I try to make when discussing these issues 
When we're talking about China, you know, in in the context of uh, censorship, we're really not talking about the Chinese people. We're talking about the government. We're talking about the Chinese Communist Party. Can you explain uh, to the audience how the system, how the CCP uses its muscle uh, to censor Hollywood studios halfway around the world? What what roughly is the process, and how do they leverage their political power uh, in order to get Hollywood? censor. It's a great point about separating the the party from the people. And, and I think the party exercises that power in two ways. One is by controlling access to Chinese movie theaters. So when a movie is finished filming and is ready to go, the studios will send a copy of it over to the Ministry of Propaganda, where a collection of state employees will watch it and decide whether or not it will be allowed to be screened in China. And therefore, obviously, make money in the Chinese market. Sometimes they'll let a movie through with no changes. Sometimes they will let a movie through if certain adjustments are made, whether it's like a line of dialogue or a scene that they think is too graphic or too sexual or has some kind of implication that they don't like. And other times they will just reject a movie outright and never really explain why. So controlling that access is one major part of their power. But I think the The other aspect is what makes China unique to other countries, because a lot of countries will censor movies before they let them onto their screens. China, however, operates at a scale that gives it another level of influence, which is they will punish studios for making movies that will never screen in China. And, and I'll give you an example. In, in the 90s, back in the sort of the Richard Gere heyday, uh, <laughs> Disney was... Uh, releasing a Martin Scorsese film called Kundin, which was about a young Dalai Lama and about Mao's invasion of Tibet. This is not a movie that Disney would have ever thought would be released in China. Nonetheless, when Chinese authorities heard about it, they called Disney executives and basically made it clear that if this movie were made and distributed anywhere in the world, that all of Disney's aspirations in the market, whether it was toys or theme parks or other bigger movies, were going to be jeopardized. And that is where that is the additional layer that really cuts to the decisions being made at a studio level, regardless of whether or not these projects are going to be released in China, that I think makes China unique among the foreign markets. So to me, that's like the level of uh, the the level of control they seek is not just of the products within their own borders. They want global censorship, and your argument is essentially they're getting it because the Hollywood studios want so much access to their market. That that's that's astonishing and very troubling. Yeah, and I think I think what it's done is it has not only made sure that movies don't get made that will anger China, right? So so obviously any script floating around about Tiananmen Square or Xinjiang province or even demonstrations in Hong Kong. No major studio is going to touch a project like that. But it is also ensured that any portrayal of China, even the most innocuous or fleeting portrayal of China in an American movie is going to only be complimentary and edited to ensure that authorities would have no problem with it. And so these... Hollywood movies that still are, I would argue, the most powerful medium in the world become these de facto commercials for China. See, and I think that's the big deal because you've 
talked somewhat, somewhat comically that the ending of the movie Fight Club, for example, gets edited in China. They, the Top Gun 2, the medal on Tom Cruise's jacket uh, is changed to be one that wouldn't be indicative of a war uh, fought against China or in support of something that, that China doesn't like. Uh, and those are interesting, but that's not global censorship and propaganda that's being filtered through American cultural institutions, like the kind I think you're suggesting is now actively happening. And in Peter's book, he talks about big tech and he talks about some of the leaders of Silicon Valley and how they're drawn to, in some ways, ideological alignment with some of the Chinese socialist values because they can control what people see and do. And it sounds like Hollywood has almost sort of willingly adopted that same mindset. And the worst part about it, I mean, at least to me, and I don't know what you think about this, is is that Americans kind of might not realize it because you don't know what you're not seeing. It's a soft power and a soft censorship that the American public is and the global audience is ignorant to because you wouldn't know that you're not seeing anything else be portrayed a different way. You're absolutely right. I mean, I have to say, though, I think um, my book does ruin the movies for you because you start to see it everywhere. Um, you, I mean, it really, um, and, and it, and it, like I said, it's, it tends to be small. I mean, sometimes it's as small as like a Chinese cell phone being used in an obvious product placement deal. But other times I think what you'll start to notice is anytime a plot moves to China and, and there are scenes set in China, inevitably there's going to be a moment at the end where the police make sure everything's safe and fine and there's no trash on the streets. I mean, those are the, the portrayal of China really is what has to be a paramount concern to the studios when it comes to making sure not only, like I said, they maintain that access, but they don't anger officials in a way that punishes them in other ways. But is it restricted to t- China, though? Because if you're saying that there's profound economic incentive to have films that China's going to want, right, and China's going to let into their marketplace, then films with any sort of anti-authoritarian or otherwise socially insidious values might might not get made. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to say because I think, you know, there have been examples of really, like, ish- storytelling tropes and mechanisms that are just inherent to American storytelling being an issue in China. Like there's this example that just blew my mind whenever I heard it of this rather innocuous and frankly forgettable comedy that came out about 15 years ago called In Good Company. And it stars Topher Grace as this young guy who gets a job. With Dennis Quaid. I love that movie. Yeah. Dennis Quaid. I mean, it is very, actually what's, what's funny, Eric, is when every time I mention it, like, it, people rush to its defense. I have to, I have to see this movie. Um, but but they, uh, Topher, correct me if I'm wrong then, but Topher Grace joins this company. He kind Dennis of Quaid's an, he's an aging ad executive and Topher Grace kind of joins, becomes his boss and he kind of gets in with, you know, likes his daughter. I'm so impressed with my own recall of this film, by the way. <laughs> well done. Well, I'm glad you're here. And, and um, I don't have to have the in good company hive come after me for getting a, a detail <laughs> wrong here. But basically it's about the younger guy coming into a company and, and telling the older dude like, hey, get out of my way. And, yeah. but it's a PG-13 rom-com and it, didn't get approval to play in Chinese theaters. And the um, head of the MPAA, Dan Glickman at the time, went over to Beijing and he said, you know, what gives? Like, this isn't, a, and, you know, there's no Dalai Lama reference in this one. And the authorities said, you know, no, it's not, it's, it's not that there's any political tripwire. It's a story about a younger generation unseating an older generation and challenging the system. 
And that is something that, that we take issue with. And I mean, I'm like, oh my God, well, think about that. That's like, that's core American DNA storytelling, right? I mean, like ever since the, it's, it's like then our national origin story is of challenging the empire, challenging the, the authorities. And so whenever it's at that root level, you see how the storytelling, the storytelling just doesn't mix. And that's why so many attempts to bleed the two together and make these China-US co-productions have just fallen flat because there's this just inherent difference in how the stories are told and the values that they impart. No, well, that's really fascinating, and I appreciate uh, the time, and I know we have to go here shortly. My last question for you, uh, Eric, is, and this is just sort of a fun one, but, you know, my name is Eric, and it's E-R-I-C. Your name is E-R-I-C-H. Now, my brother-in-law has an extra H in his name. His name is Tom, and he spells it T-H-O-M. And, you know, he is exactly how you think he might be, right? He swam in college. He's into third wave coffee. And so I wonder if you having an extra H, you feel like has set you on this cultural trajectory towards a more enlightened experience. Like there was no chance you were going to be like in the coal business in West Virginia with your name, right? You think you think the extra H is, a, is sort of an elevating, has an elevating power. Absolutely. I have... I really appreciate that. I don't know. Usually, I mean, um, it's funny. It usually gives the. I mean, so so the story behind it is is a little bit more. Uh, I'd say just purely aesthetic, which is that because my last name Schwartzel is just just so crazily Germanic. Um, my my parents named me and my sisters very Germanic names. So I'm Eric, and my sisters are named Gretchen and Kirsten. Mm. So um, it, it really. I, 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 I take it as a compliment, the, the implication that it's elevated us. I mean, I will say it just really has, uh, growing up, like, made people think we all were, were wearing lederhosen at home or, like, you know, um, or just taking family trips to Oktoberfest. Um, but no, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, rare, it's rare to find and, and, and rare throughout, uh, throughout history to, to see. But yeah, no, I, I, I but I, I, I like that vibe. I think, I think you're, maybe it has sort of set me on this course. I mean, you're a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and I'm, and I'm sure you're into third wave coffee. That'd be my guess. So. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say third wave, but I'm not going to get into my coffee habits because it might confirm every stereotype you have of me. So. I <laughs> well, it's terrific, Eric. Thanks so much for joining us. I think uh, our Eric now is going to be, um, feeling something's lacking in his life and it's that h at the uh at the uh, end of his first name but thanks so much for joining us i recommend everybody to uh get uh red carpet by eric schwartzel Uh, it's a terrific book and you will learn a lot from it it's been my pleasure guys really a fun time thanks a lot our thanks once again to eric schwartzel and for peter schweitzer i am eric eggers and we just want to say thank you for joining us on the drill down For more episodes and all the investigations that we do here at the Government Accountability Institute and lots of other really interesting articles. And of course, Peter Schwartz's latest number one for multiple weeks in a row, blockbuster runaway hit, Red Handed. Please check out thedrilldown.com.